uh, take your worship folders on the front. You'll see our scripture passage for today. Our series that we're, um, we're doing these over these weeks together, it comes from the first letter to John, of John, um, but it is based on the idea that throughout this letter, John reveals the very nature and character of God. So we're calling it God is and how he reveals himself and his character and then how he uh, wants us then to respond to his to who he is and what he does. So let's read together these verses. I like it when you read out loud with me. Uh, it's verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2 of 1 John. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. <clears throat> what, John is, what John is most interested in you understanding and, and all of us understanding is how does a person come into a right standing with a righteous God? Jesus himself is declared here to be the righteous one. Jesus, the righteous one. In other words, there is a standard of righteousness that transcends the laws of man or the culture that you come from or the, the background of family uh, rules that you come from. There is, a, there is a thing that is right. There are things to do that are right, that God has declared that are in uh, that are uh, compatible with his very nature and char character. So John is very interested in us beginning to understand how do you come into a right standing with your maker, with your creator, this God who is righteous. And so basically he's explaining in both chapter 1 and in chapter 2, he's explaining that there really are only two ways to come into right standing with God. And the, the one way is that you be perfect as God is perfect, that you are as righteous as God is righteous, that there would be no sin in you, that there would be no place in your heart or your behavior or anything else where you act independently of God, where there would be no place where there would be any room for your own glory, but you have given yourself fully and totally over to the glory of God, and everything you do is perfect and righteous. Now, if any of you in this room today believe that you can stand before God in that righteousness you're a liar yeah I like to start off very flattering <laughs> I mean at some point don't you just want to be told the truth don't you just want to realize that that you know let's say you have cancer and somebody says well we took half of it out you know do you want just half of it out or do you want all of it out do you want an operation that, that has 10% chance or do you want one that has 100% chance? 
In reality, what John is saying is that you have a cancer called sin that is going to destroy your life eternally. And either you are a liar or God is a liar, and I have a feeling you know you're a liar. He's righteous. You can't stand before and have a right standing before him on the basis of your own life, on the basis of your own behavior. And even if you can fool all of us with your behavior and make us think you're a good person, your heart accuses you. Your attitudes accuse you. You know what you think in secrets. And you know the secret shame that you bear. And so what, what John is talking about here is the way that, that you and I come into a right standing with a righteous God. Now one of the things that he explains right from the beginning, and, and it's powerful and it's true, it's not necessarily easy to accept, but basically John is saying, you are not worthy, I'm not worthy, we are not worthy to enter into the presence of God. But then he explains that if you get this and you understand this, if you can get the bad news, then you can get the good news. And the bad news is that we aren't worthy to enter in, but, but the good news is God is only for people who see themselves as moral failures. See, once you really get it and you stop trying to pretend that you're not a moral failure, then you activate the grace of God. You activate the love of God. God's love is poured out on those who recognize how much of a failure we are spiritually and morally. That we are bankrupt. And because we recognize that we're bankrupt, He starts coming in with grace. He starts moving in love for us. Jesus didn't come for the righteous. He came for the, the unrighteous. He didn't come for the well. He came for the sick. And so it becomes, in a sense, a badge of honor to say, I'm the sickest of the sick. I am unrighteous. Again, do you want all the cancer out? Or do you want to leave a little bit in? See, that's what religion does. Religion tries to make the cancer look pretty. It tries to make it look acceptable. It tries to make it normal. That's why it doesn't work. It's still cancer. It's still terminal. It's still deadly. You have to, you have to see in, in the scriptures, you have to begin to see and understand that the Bible says, that there's this good news, but it's only good to those who recognize I am a failure. See, this is one of the quotes that I like. Only people who see that they are not worthy to go in, that they need someone to go in for them. If you don't see that, if you don't see yourself as so sinful that you don't have the right to just go to God and speak to him, you haven't gotten the first point. You're not able to experience intimacy with the Father. You cannot go in in your own name. You cannot go in on your own behalf. You cannot make a deal with God. That's what John is saying here. Now, he says it really clearly in both verses 8 and 10 and then later in chapter 2. But I wanted to remind you of what he said in, in the first chapter. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. We make God a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, there really are, there's really two ways that, many, that, that we tend to respond to this message. See, the one is, the one way is that I, I will fight, you know, I'll rise up in resistance and say, I will fight anybody that calls me a sinner. I'm a good person, I have a good heart, and you dare not call me a, a bad or evil sinner. That's one way people rise up. The other way is that they, they, they are so overwhelmed by guilt and so overwhelmed by their, their sensitivity to how they have screwed up that they just, they just they, they become crushed by the by this, this sense of being a sinner. Now, since we're in New York, my sense is that we're more the resistant type. <laughs> Who are you to tell me anything? And so I want to I wanna just... I want to beat on this drum just a little bit. There was a, a great theologian, great pastor, revivalist of the 19th century. He's one of the greatest preachers that ever lived. His name was Charles Spurgeon. And he used to preach uh, in London and preach to tens of thousands of people. And his sermons were bestsellers all over the world. And he explains this idea of how something that we think is little and small can actually be something very big and powerful. For example, uh, when my daughter was, was young, and this probably is going to cost me money because when I tell a story and I don't ask her permission, she makes me buy her a purse. <laughs> but I can't help it. I like this story, okay? So we were teaching her, we were teaching her the Bible, we were teaching her things about God, and, and one of the things that we said, you know, to, to her, we use this question and answer thing. And, and so, you know, one of the questions was, uh, why do you need a Savior? And the answer was, because I'm a sinner. And my daughter, at that time, maybe four or five years old or whatever, looked at me and said, Daddy, I'm just a little sinner. <laughs> and of course, you know, it's sweet coming from your daughter, but it's also heresy and she's lying. But it's the way we like to think about ourselves. It's the way we like to think of ourselves. I'm at least not as bad as this guy. Or I'm, <laughs> I didn't mean to point anybody at that. <laughs> so here's what Spurgeon said. He said, do you realize that in the acorn, in, the, in the, the very substance of the acorn is a forest. He said, in one acorn is every element that will be needed for a tree. Then that tree will become another thousand acorns. And every one of those can become another tree and another thousand and a thousand until you have a whole sea of, of oak trees. He said, in some ways it's almost counterintuitive, but that which is little contains all that is needed to become something huge. And then he asked this question, he said, where do you think murder comes from? It comes from a grudge. It comes from selfishness in you. It comes from, it didn't go my way. I just assumed this person not exist anymore. And in my own life, um, 
I remember little things that became huge things. Especially in the days when I, I had just finished seminary and I was just beginning my, my career as a pastor and then as a missionary. And I attached myself to this guy who was a little bit older than me, whose family was very uh, well connected in the mission that I was a part of. And I thought he was a very cool guy. And so I thought, oh, great, this guy likes me. I'm gonna, he and I, we're going to do ministry together. And I didn't realize inside of me was this people-pleasing spirit. This lack, of, this lack of, in a sense, real acceptance in the Lord. I was trying to gain my acceptance by performing. This guy tapped into that. Now, one of the things when we would be together is he would start telling me all the negative things about all the people we worked with. He would tell all their secrets, their sin, their shame, all this stuff. At first, I thought, wow, he trusts me so much. He's telling me these deep information about people. Then I started, then, you know, we got deeper into the relationship, and we got on the mission field together, and we went to language school together. And six weeks in, he looks at me, and he says, I've grown to hate you. Well, I mean, being a, being a, competitive male, I hated him more than he hated me. <laughs> and I would have said I have righteous anger with him. Because see, when you're sinning, you usually cover it up. And I, I was filled with anger. And I was thinking the very things that Spurgeon said about the acorn that he talks about here. He says, what do you think murder is? What do you think it starts with? Murder has to start with the thought that says, I wish this person weren't here. I don't like that person. It starts with a grudge. It starts with selfishness. It starts with pride. It starts with self-centeredness. What do you think that is? In your heart, that acorn cup of your heart, there is an ocean of evil. Well, it almost cost me my family because my wife came to me and said, you either need to get over this and get past this, or we need to go home. And I said, well, you're not for me, so I hate you. And then that opened me up to all kinds of other thoughts and other actions, because you see, acorn is never content just to be a tree. It has to become a forest. And I, I see in my own heart, and I recognize in my own heart, you know, that I can cover up and make it look good, and I can spin it, but it's still evil. Still wickedness. But the beauty of this is the more I accept this and the more I embrace this, the more the good news of the Bible begins to make me into the person I really want to be but can't become unless I'm honest. Unless I start to realize I really am morally bankrupt. I really am spiritually bankrupt. Well, that's what, that's what John's talking about here. Is that going to go? Can you forward that a couple? Go one more. Thank you. So here's what, here's what John says is the solution to the, my acorn problem. He says, we have an advocate. I love this. I love this. Listen, listen what an advocate means. An advocate is someone who has an official relationship with you. So that whatever the advocate achieves, you achieve. And whatever the advocate loses, you lose. An advocate is a legal proxy. 
An advocate is a legal representative. In philosophical, theological language, an advocate is a federal head. From the Latin word fetus, meaning covenant. It means you have entered into a relationship with this person so that this person represents you. So that what that person does is transferred to you. You see, once I know I need an advocate, I have the best advocate. (laughs) He's my official representative. He becomes covenantally bound to me. No longer am I on my own trying to get in a right standing with God, but he represents me. Now, in two ways, the scripture says that he becomes our advocate. My favorite is this first one. In the book of Hebrews, it says, he is our champion. And the idea is that Jesus becomes a Hercules-type figure for you. That he stands against all your enemies. He stands against everything that would come against you. And he fights for you. See, the idea is a very old Greek idea called archegos. And the archegos was a representative who would come into the arena and fight on behalf of an army. A lot of times the armies would decide, we don't want so much bloodshed, so we'll entrust our army to our champion, and the other army will entrust their army to their champion, and whoever wins, the outcome then becomes what everybody has to agree to. You see this in the battle between Goliath and David. This is one of Lisa's favorite things to teach on and And I enjoy how she tells it so well. But she talks about the fact that what Goliath wanted, Goliath wanted someone who would come and fight him on his terms. Goliath wanted someone who would go sword to sword, toe to toe, because Goliath was bigger than everybody else. His sword was bigger. His armor was bigger. If he could fight on his terms, nobody would beat him. But what did David do? David fought on his terms. You see, one thing about being big is you're not always fast. And Goliath was huge, and he had a heavy, heavy sword, and he had a heavy, heavy armament and everything. And David said, I'm going to fight on my terms. And David took a sling and five rocks. Now, some people asked me before, why do you think he had five rocks? I think he had one for Goliath and four for his brothers. Because he was confident. He was confident. You see, he knew. He knew that he was going to fight him on David's terms. You see, you've got to hear me on this. If you want to fight the enemy of your soul on your terms, you will lose. If you go righteousness against righteousness, you will lose. If you go behavior against behavior, you will lose. You go obedience versus obedience, you will lose. The accuser will always have your past to threaten you for your future. But if you switch the terms and you change the playing field, your champion always wins. See, and what happens if you get this is you'll get a spiritual backbone in you where you won't be listening to that voice anymore that says you're nothing, you're nobody. Because now you are tied to your champion. And and the enemy may have beaten you, but he's never beaten your champion. And so instead of saying, yeah, you know, you got me, instead you say, but you never got him. 
And you begin to stand up. And you begin to have a spiritual backbone. And you, you begin, to, your faith is in your champion, not you. Changes everything. But not only is it the issue of the champion, the archegos, but also this idea of paraclete is the Greek word that is used there, is the idea of a legal proxy or a lawyer. Now, here, here's some things I'd like you to know about that. In the, in the case, in, in that case, the lawyer then stands in and represents the client so that what the lawyer achieves, the client achieves, and what the lawyer loses, the client loses. There was a Presbyterian theologian from Princeton by the name of Charles Hodge. He wrote this about our relationship to Christ. He says, the relationship of Christ to his people is that of a legal advocate to a client. The former personates the latter. The lawyer stands in the client's place. It is, while it lasts, the most intimate of relationships. You may not even have to appear in court. You are not heard. You are not regarded. You are lost in your advocate, who for the time being is your representative. The advocate, not you, is seen. The advocate, not you, is heard. The advocate, not you, is regarded. That's the best news. That is the best of news. Think about it. And, and if you're still at that place where you want to fight with God, you're an idiot. Where you want to be heard. But, but look at all the things that have been done to me. And look how bad my life has been. And you want to make that your defense. It's a horrible defense. You want to make excuses and give reasons why you aren't what you should be. Or make excuses and defend yourself because of others and what others have done for you. You will never realize the fullness of who you are as a person. You'll always be undeveloped. You'll always, always be less than you could be. What happens is once you bind yourself to your advocate, you become all he is. You have all he has accomplished. Your very nature becomes his nature. If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In 2 Peter Chapter 1, he actually says this. You become partakers of the divine nature. Now, you can, you can, and many people will, will go to God directly. They will stand before God, and they will plead their case. And when they do so, they will not be able to speak. Because they'll have no case. And it's important that we get that. Have you ever seen in the Bible when even angels show up, people don't talk? Do you think before the throne they're going to be able to give a, a huge account? Seriously doubt it. That is why even when Jesus appears, it says every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. That will be involuntary. But what we're saying is voluntarily, the one who is that scary can become your advocate. Well, what does he do as your advocate? It, it doesn't say, you know, can you stay with me? Because this is the part that I am holding on to with right now in a new way that I had not seen before. 
This is new to me. It doesn't say that the advocate is standing there as Jesus Christ the merciful. See, what many of you have done is you have a sense of righteousness and unrighteousness. You have a sense of sin and guilt and all of that. And so you know you screw up. You know you sin. You know you do the wrong thing. I mean, all of us, we, we, we have this ability to do what we don't want to do and not do what we do want to do. Okay? We all have that. And so a lot of us, even as we're confessing to God, we're like, oh, please be merciful to me. And so what's happening is there's this thing inside of us that keeps going, I wonder how many times he lets me screw up. I wonder how many times he's going to. And so we're, we're depending on Jesus the merciful. Now, God is merciful, but that's not the basis of his advocacy. His advocacy with us is not because he's merciful, and it's not because he's persuasive. He's going, oh, let me think. Can I give a persuasive argument why God should not wipe risen king off the face of the earth? That's not what he's thinking. That's not what's going on. Can I come up with a creative way to tell the Father why you should be given another chance? That's not what he's saying. He's called Jesus Christ the righteous one. See, what he has done is he has tied... What he says as your advocate to his justice. Notice it says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and merciful. He is faithful and persuasive. No, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. In other words, a good lawyer doesn't play on emotions. A good lawyer has a case. And here's the case. Father, it would be unjust for you to take two payments for this sin. I have already paid for it. Therefore, Father, I do not ask for mercy. I demand justice. Are you getting that? That means that voice you've been listening to is a liar. That one that says, you've got to atone for what you did. You've got to pay for it. You've got to make up for it. That you're never going to count for anything. All of those voices that speak out of false guilt and false shame and all that stuff. That voice is, is trying to get you to not hear what your advocate is saying. Right. Say it out loud with me. Say what the... What, Father, it would be unjust for you to take two payments for this sin. I have already paid for it. Therefore, Father, I do not ask for mercy. I demand justice. That's what the advocate is doing right now. And what is the enemy? He wants to keep you bound in your past, making you think you don't have a future. But you do have a future. Now, the two things that this applies to and deals with, okay? The two things that this applies to is the feelings of guilt or the voice of guilt and the feelings of disappointment. Let me just hit those very quickly. When you hear this voice saying, you're stupid, you always do wrong, you never do the right thing, um, you, you, you've got to understand, you see, God has not just given you forgiveness. The reason you can't deal with your guilt is that you believe God is just simply merciful. He is very merciful. It was mercy that brought forth the whole idea of Jesus dying on the cross and standing in for us. But you must understand that not only does the mercy of God allow that he love and accept you and then shower you with blessings and treat you as if you were his son, but his justice demands that he treat you that way now. Now, you, you're not demanding that he treat you that way. 
He's demanding it of himself. You are then by faith accepting that he now sees you in that status. This is how, friends, this is how people who are total screw-ups become saints. This is how people who have no hope become hopeful. This is how people who have incredible experiences of giving themselves over to Satan, to the world, and to their flesh suddenly realize that no longer has a hold over me. Secondly, it also speaks to this, to any of us who tend to be religious people. It speaks to this, is that doing things out of fear, doing things out of obligation, or doing things out of guilt are not loving. Even as a a father, as an earthly father, if my kids, my my son, my daughter, my son-in-law, if they're just doing things because they have to, because they're afraid of me, or because... Because in some way they fear my retribution or whatever. I don't get any sense of pleasure or satisfaction out of those actions. I only rejoice in my children's activity when they do it because they want to. When they love me freely. Do you think that the God who is your father who knows the heart and the motivation of everything you do. Is in any way fooled. By your fearful, guilt-ridden obedience. That you do it because you're afraid of the consequences of not doing it. There's no value in that. See, he has taken the ground of guilt away so that now you can do what you do for him because you love him. Because you trust him. If If you make a decision, I love you, Father then you will trust that he knows what to do with your sexual life. If you say, I love you, Father, then you trust him that he knows what you should do with your financial life, with your time, with your focus. Now, the second thing is that this gives us the power to deal with the disappointment and even the loss of earthly hope. In the the book of Acts, in chapter 6 and 7, there's the story of Stephen. Stephen is this amazing story where this man who is so filled with the Holy Spirit and so wise in the things of the Lord that he gets elevated from being just a a member of the church, that early church, and he becomes a deacon in the church and he becomes an evangelist in the church. He's an amazing fellow. But he's one of the first ones who gets picked up by the religious police and he's brought before them and they tell him, you need to give an account for what what you got to say. And so if you read his story, and it's, it's an incredible uh, sermon that he preaches. He preaches a sermon that almost all the way through it, they would absolutely agree with everything he's saying. And then he turns and he looks at him and says, you need Jesus. You are not right with God. You need Jesus. Jesus is the one you've been looking for. You need to humble yourselves and you need to come to Christ. Well, at that moment, he infuriated them. And so they took up stones and they took it up to kill him. Now, here's the thing, friends. Before the execution took place, heaven rent. And Stephen didn't have a vision. Stephen saw what is reality. He saw the throne of God. He saw the Father. And he looked into the Father's eyes, and Stephen saw nothing but love. Just like you're going to see when you see the Father's eyes. But he saw something that most people will never see. 
He saw the Son of God, God the Son, who normally is seated at the right hand of the Father, advocating for you and me, interceding for us. In that moment, he was standing. He was advocating from a position of standing. And Stephen saw it. And you know what happened is that Stephen so saw the reality of his advocate that he forgot he was being executed. If you you look at, he experienced rejection on earth, but welcome in heaven. He was branded a heretic and a traitor on earth, but in heaven he was a beloved son. He was executed as a criminal on earth, but he was honored as a martyr for all eternity in heaven. See, once you get this, you begin to realize this is not all there is. What's going on here often will be disappointing. Sometimes it's even an outright betrayal. But if you lift up your eyes, you will see that in your worst moments, your advocate is standing for you. In your hardest moments, your advocate is asking for justice for you. You don't need to speak. You don't even need to show up in the court. He's already taken care of it for you. Will you stand with me? Can I ask you to open up to God right now? To be a very vulnerable person before God right now and to let Him do surgery? It's not about just changing your behavior. It's about taking that cancer off your heart. Letting Him cut deep. Let the grace of God cut deep. See, after a while, you start to realize you don't need to protect any of your sinfulness anymore. You don't need to excuse it. You don't need to give reasons for it. Because it's that sinfulness that activates the grace of God. It's that need that activates the love of God. Jesus is near to the brokenhearted, not to those who cover up their brokenness. So would you say this with me? Lord, I confess that I am a moral and spiritual failure. I am bankrupt. My heart is capable of great deception. I will not approach God on the basis of my name, my behavior, or even my sacrifices. But I declare this day, I have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. He paid the penalty for me. Now, I'm going to ask you to make this personal. Would you say this with me? Jesus, you are my champion. You're my covenant head. head. Everything you have achieved, you have given to me. me. Every victory you have won won. belongs to me. me. I receive it. it. 
Now, I'm going to ask you to, I'm going to ask you to do a little spiritual cleanup. Would you say this with me? I bind the voice of guilt and shame. You no longer will motivate me. You will no longer alienate me. And you know specifically what that voice sounds like. Some of you hear things like you're stupid, you never amount to anything, you always blow it. Whatever it is, you have to recognize that's not God's voice. If your advocate is demanding justice for you on the basis of what he's already accomplished for you, then he is asking for no other atonement from you but to believe him, to trust him, to put your faith in him. He is my advocate. He is my atonement. He is my propitiation. So would you say this way? Voice of guilt. guilt. Go to the feet of Jesus. Jesus. You have no place with me. me. Now primarily that's past guilt. That's false guilt. There will be times when you do wrong and the Spirit convicts you and He gives you godly sorrow. But the difference is this. Godly sorrow leads you to change. It's about things that can be changed. The enemy's guilt is about things that cannot be changed. There are things you regret but cannot repent. So I'm asking you to put a line in the sand and say that voice has no place with me. My heart is very, I I love keeping my heart sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I want to move wherever He moves. I want to change whatever He asks me to change because I trust that where He's leading me is where I always want it to go. So Lord, we seal what you're doing today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If, If some of this, particularly dealing with guilt, disappointment, a sense of spiritual security. If that has resonated with you today, uh, some of our prayer ministers will can be up here at the, the platform and they can kind of, sometimes it's just important to say it out loud to somebody else, just to have a prayer, a time of sealing this with the Lord. Um, you don't have to ever be overwhelmed by guilt again or disappointment. But sometimes I tell you, you've got to get it up, you've got to get it out, you've got to get it into the light. Would you come and do that today with one of our prayer people? And even if it's, if it's a, a marriage, like you've got some stuff going on in your family, bring your family. Pray together. See a, see a breakthrough. The, Jesus loves to advocate. That's who he is. Will you let him advocate for you today? God bless you. Hug some people on the way out. We'll see you next week.